You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my delight of a co-host, Mr. Adam Hawkins. Adam, it's Easter season. Can you explain to me, why do we have bunnies laying eggs at Easter? I don't know. I think it has something to do with, like, fertility and, like, a spring thing. Oh. Was it, isn't it a pagan? Where is it in the Bible, though? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Um, isn't it Shadrach, not? Meshach, and Abednego? <laughs> Maybe isn't there is. a bunny there? Isn't, like, the egg a symbol of the Trinity? <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. There's, like, a yolk in the <laughs> shell. Uh, you need to watch the Village Church Explainer video on yeah, the Trinity. I do. Which really is excellent. It well, is excellent. Today's episode, we're also going to be joined in the studio by, by our friend Mason King and a friend, Nate Elgin, who's going to help us talk through some of the stuff going on this spring. On this episode, we're kind of doing a cultural roundup. We're going to talk about Easter. We're going to talk about Major League Baseball, and we're going to talk about minimalism. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Here you go. Hey, gentlemen, it's Holy Week, which means we are coming up on Easter. And even though that's a Christian holiday, obviously it goes well beyond the bounds of Christianity to bunnies and chocolate eggs and all the stuff that makes so much logical sense as we celebrate Easter. (laughs) When we follow the practice, the season of Easter, celebrating the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection, how how is that? Other than the fact that it's not about the bunny. Talk to me about why is Easter countercultural, and maybe even that will explain a little bit of why our culture had to invent some other reason to celebrate it. But why is Easter a countercultural idea? Mason, you're a doctor of theology now. <laughs> Surely you have some opinions the about, the resurrection. about the resurrection. Well, I, do, I think as we think about practicing habits throughout uh, observing the Christian calendar, uh-huh. there's a lot really for us to think about that is countercultural. So as we think through... Uh, what it is to step into the meta narrative of the scriptures and what is happening in this point in history. Yeah. And to take ourselves out of just the daily grind of what's happening in our work or uh, in our inbox, but to say, what is happening in history today? What is Christ doing on Palm Sunday? What is happening on Monday when he enters the temple? Like what's, what's going on Thursday as we're heading home, what's going on for him as he's going into the garden and to try and step out or you really connect what's going on in our moments to what's happening in his moments is a way for us to really uh, step out of our myopic view of history, which is often just as long as the Twitter feed. and uh, (laughs) Which is longer than it used to be. It's longer than it used to be. But (laughs) but it also, like it also, uh, our view of history is so disconnected now because we have no real connection of how we line up in the the greater narrative of a God story. Okay. And so we took history in high school or in middle school. If we were a Texan, you got Texas history and you forgot about it. And understanding anything for greater Western or or, uh, really world history we don't press into more past college. Okay. So as an adult, I think it's very countercultural to practice uh, observing the resurrection, observing all the events of Holy Week because yeah. it helps place us into Christ's story and helps use our sanctified imagination yeah. for, for us to really grow in what it is to be present uh, for what's happening in the scriptures. That's good. I, I think you've drawn out a really good picture of how like what we think about with Easter is different than the culture. I think one of the difficulties for Christians in our culture is because our culture has reappropriated our holiday, it makes it uh, almost awkward. I see like a Christian shame around saying, well, because I'm a Christian, 
I believe these things or I practice these things or this is what I do at Easter. And we have so um, become one with our culture in a way since Christians are so pervasive that it's very normal for us to go to Easter egg hunts. It's very normal for us to share chocolate bunnies as Christians and to uh, do some of the uh, secular versions of Easter alongside what we say is a Christian version, which might be sunrise service and dressing up and putting lilies or waving palms on Palm Sunday. It's very normal for Christians to kind of marry those two things together, but maybe we're alongside our secular culture, not really mention how for Christians it is different because there's kind of a, I'm sorry, since I'm a Christian, I do this differently sense in Christianity today. What do you, if you were talking to somebody at the end of a service this weekend and somebody came up to you and said, Hey, is it, is it okay for me to do the secular Easter things in addition to this? What kind of um, uncovering or deeper questions might you ask or what kind of advice might you give as pastors, as ministers? This is what we think about secular Easter and as it pertains to what we believe in the, in the Christian Easter. What do you think? Uh, I think I would, one of the things I would emphasize is that by participating in some of those wider cultural traditions, Easter egg hunts, Easter baskets, the bunny, all that kind of stuff, um, a lot of times that can give you an entry point into reaching your neighbors uh, so that you can have a chance to share the true meaning of, of Easter, why we actually celebrate it. It's a, it's a chance for you to embed yourself in the culture around you, hmm. get to know your neighbors, evangelize, um, and I, I would kind of ask them maybe what they perceive to be the danger there in doing that. Why Why do they feel that tension there? And then talk some of, I mean, you could go to some of what Paul says about, um, you know, eating certain things depending on the culture you're in. Yeah. Uh, as long as it does not take away from your obedience to Christ. I, th- I think we're given freedom now being under under grace instead of the law to, to walk in those spaces that aren't, um, as black and white, uh, according to what the scriptures say, so that we can uh, posture ourselves as those wanting to reach for the uh, for the betterment of those around us. Okay. What do you say to the person, though, that thinks like anything secular is evil and detracting from God? Like there are people, mm. and you probably know them, the Easter bunny is the beast. You know, it is the beast in <laughs> Revelation. Maybe not literally, I don't believe that. That would be kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But I like to imagine a giant Easter bunny being the beast in Revelation. Uh, but the people that really think like, if you celebrate Halloween... If you talk about Santa at Christmas, if you do the Easter bunny egg thing, there are people that believe that is such a dishonor to God. And I can kind of get there to go, if we are talking about the resurrection and you're spending your day, to, uh, your kids are most excited about a basket of chocolate eggs, how do we how well, do I we think if, you're, if your kids are mostly excited about a, bag of chocolate, or a basket of chocolate eggs, like you're doing it wrong. Okay, good. And talk me if through you're, that. If you're thinking through, hey, can I allow my kids to go, like when we lived uh, three homes ago, when we said, hey, there's a neighborhood Easter egg hunt. Our whole home group is going to go. Yeah. And we're going to take our small kids. So my three-year-old can go and get eggs and I can get all the Reese's eggs and this is going to be great. <laughs> like this is what we're going to Just do. Just the right balance of this, peanut butter and chocolate. That's right. <laughs> Who's our sponsor I feel today? great freedom to eat those. Um, I think through my children understand and I want to disciple them in such a way that they get why we do Easter. Yeah. Has much more to do with Christ. Yes. And much more to do with the event of the week than they wake up and there's a new Easter basket full of stuff in our living room. Yes. Like I, I think if you have someone who comes in and says, you can't do Santa because it's going to take away the message of, of Christmas, I think that it might reveal, I think you should actually talk about the message of Christmas more than just around the week mm. of Christmas. Amen. Yeah. And so if you're doing a faithful and present work in working through the culture of your family, that it's not just a conversation that comes up around the calendar, but it's a conversation in the fabric of how you're discipling your home. That's more important. 
And so I think that's the conversation I would have with people if they get really kind of wide-eyed of like, this is appropriating culture. And it's, no, like you're going, like Nate said, to walk around and, and be around unbelievers around you yeah. and be more known for the love that you bring in presence than what you're against. Yeah. And then be able to say, yeah. hey, but let me tell you how our family practices this. Good. And my kid's hope is not an Easter basket. Yeah. And it, they might dress up nice on Sunday and we're going to take a family photo because this is part of good Southern Baptist culture. But uh, <laughs> like the message is about Christ. That's really good. And I, I think there's something uh, that was an excellent word, especially to parents who are thinking about it with their kids and thinking about it. But really for anybody, a single, that's a, that is a, or a, an unmarried or a young married or not kids yet or a student. That's a great word to say, how are you thinking about Easter? In some ways, it can be discouraging to think there are things in our culture that they have twisted to make about things that are not God. That, sure. Uh, and similar, and uh, you could say the same thing Christianity did in the past. But in some ways, it, anything that we would point to and say that's discouraging to us as Christians, it's still an opportunity. And yeah. so we who have faith in a God who's, whose arm is not too short to save can look at Easter and say, listen, our whole culture is aware of this holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not people who have just moved here from other countries, but if you grew up in America, you're aware of the holiday Easter, and it's an opportunity for us to share about the resurrection. Which, yeah. which more could we ask for than an well, opportunity to share the gospel? I think even as a believer, as you're looking at the Holy Week and you're thinking through, how can I participate in the Holy Week? If your experience of the Holy Week is limited to just celebrating the resurrection, resurrection on Sunday, yeah, you need to widen your understanding yeah. of what's happening in that week. That's good. And so being able to step in traditions, like when we've done Monday, thir- Monday Thursday services, mm-hmm. being able to enter in at different points in the week, like the point I was making earlier, really helps broaden your experience of what's going on and appreciating the work that the incarnation is doing. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, speaking of Easter, speaking of spring, this is also another big uh, cultural movement for a smaller segment, I don't know, of our culture. Not really for me. I This is not really getting my antenna up, but for a lot of people, it is. Uh, and that's why, Nate, that's why you're here today to help <laughs> us think through this, Nate. I, Thank you. This is the time of opening day for Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah. The first of it about 2,000 games per team that will lead into next October. Uh, 162? Yep. Uh, Still too many but thank for you. me. But, <laughs> uh, well, let's just start like this. It, I am the epitome of an American guy who loves sports but does not follow baseball. I feel like I could name some of the top players. Okay. I, I, sometimes keep up with who's playing who and who's doing well, but I really don't keep up with it. And in the past, like maybe a hundred years ago, baseball was it. It was the sport, yeah. but it seems to me, and this is from an outside observer and why I'm glad you're here. It seems like this is a cultural thing that seems to be waning. Like baseball is not sure. the popular thing sure. that it used to be. Is is baseball still America's pastime, Nate? Is this what people are geeked up about? I'm just the oddball out. Uh, in my heart, it is. Okay. So I don't know so if that counts just, for anything, but uh, <laughs> it, it is. Uh, Mason is shaking his head no. It does not yeah. count for anything. I'm just laughing. Like my experience with baseball growing up with the Rangers cut out at about 10 when mm. Nolan threw that punch at Ventura. Like, I mean, that's. Were you allowed to watch that moment? I'm pretty sure I saw it. But like okay. that's after that, like I was like, okay, I think I'm done. It was a heartache, heartache relationship with them through my teen years. That was old man strength on display right there. It, it was. was. It was. That's a classic moment. Um, yeah, I do think baseball is declining. Um, in in popularity, attendance, um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the nature of the culture of baseball uh, clashing with the culture of millennials. I'm mid-30s. I'm kind of, depending on who you read, at the top end, the old end of millennials. So guys my age and younger uh, are used to uh, binge watching, having things right yeah, at their on fingertips. demand. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. In, instant kind of instant gratification. Highlights. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, baseball is a 
long-term, disciplined, patient uh, environment. Whether you're a fan or you're a coach or you're a player, it involves uh, lengthy discipline, research. It is a thinking man's game, and it's kind of a long-term discipline. Oh, so you're saying because I don't like it, I'm not a thinking man. Uh, no, I you guys are consumer, though. It's an event. Like, you're at a day at the ballpark. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're not there for a 15-minute highlight reel. See, and I think highlights yeah. is a great word to think about because when I watch the highlights of a baseball game, I'm still not excited. <laughs> you know, when they're yeah. like, check out this catch. <clears throat> like, yeah, I've seen catches like that before. But you're saying it's kind of, is it the strategy of the game that you get into? Is it kind of seeing For the, sure. Okay, because I think that's where I don't get it as a thinking man's game. Because I have never invested enough to go, what are the managers trying to accomplish? And what are the players thinking here? Yeah. To me, it was always, are they tr- they're trying to hit the ball and the other guy's trying to get the ball past them. Right. And that's kind of everyone's experience when you're in T-ball, growing up Little League, that kind of stuff. Really, until you get into probably high school, you're not doing a ton of strategy. And I'll just, cards on the table, I was not good enough to play in high school. I got cut. (laughs) So I also, my last at-bat ever, I was 14, I think. I foul-tipped the ball into my own nose and gushed blood all over home plate. And I was like, you know what? I think this is a great that time. That was the to end of your I'm a strategy guy now. <laughs> yeah. I'm a strategy yeah. guy now. This is now a thinking man. Okay? <laughs> I'll be in the stands yeah. thinking yeah. about this. Um, my first ever at bat, I got up there, and this will tell you how much I didn't know about baseball, but my coach started yelling at me to choke up, which of course means your hands up the bat. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant, so Did I just start started- crying? I, no, I started going- <laughs> Like at the pitcher, just choking at him, thinking this must be an intimidation thing. Oh, yeah. Everybody was looking at me like, who is this moron kid? Gosh. And that was the end of my career. Uh, uh, well, I played softball a couple more years, but that's so funny. That is so funny. But what is, uh, so I, I think there is kind of a measurable decline in mm-hmm. fandom for baseball. Yeah. What does that tell us about our culture? If it's a thinking man's game, if it's a patient game, you're saying it's because our culture wants immediate gratification. Maybe it's like I just described. We want highlights where it's just like, wow, this is something the world's never seen before, which with 100 years of baseball behind you, it's harder to find something new. You know, the, the double play is still the double play. Yeah. And the, the diving catch or the knocking over the catcher, do we just need, is it violence? Is it the craving of speed and violence that our culture has changed to? Or is it that there's an alternative that presents more of a, a novelty? Uh, I, I think novelty is probably a good word to use. I think baseball kind of has just always had the same pattern, the the same type of strategy. You're starting to see that shift a little bit now because pitchers on average are throwing faster than they ever have in the history of the sport. Really? Uh, yeah, it used to be like- Because of performance enhancing <clears throat> drugs? Maybe. Oh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I, I, but honestly, I think that also- the, uh, Did that tarnish a little bit of the reputation? I of the think sport? so. I yeah. think so. Because you had guys in the in the eighties and nineties, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, yeah. Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens. All these guys dominated the sport for about twenty years, and then about ten years ago, I, I think roughly ten years ago, you started getting all these reports of performance enhancing drugs, and that takes away from the authenticity. Uh, that I think millennials long for. Yeah, I think it tarnishes it. I mean, the last yeah. time I remember being at a game was at Wrigley during the kind of the home run era. Yeah. yeah. And see McGuire go after it. And afterwards, like, well, he was on drugs. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, it just doesn't, it, there's something, I mean, every sport has some form of, uh, they're trying to get an edge by doing something that's either illegal or against the rules. But in baseball, it's become such a big deal. And it seems like because it's such a traditional sport, because it's such a sport steeped in history, it now seems, to me at least, and this is as a non-fan, it seems like the fans I know feel like, man, there's something just artificial 
about the current version of baseball. Yeah, uh, and they've done a lot. The league has, Major League Baseball has done a lot to clean up a lot of that stuff. Um, and, and you're seeing ramifications of that that era, the, they call it the steroid era of okay. baseball Are now. we out of the steroid era? Uh, ideally, they, they okay. say we are uh, okay. because they've kind of upped the standards now of, of what you can take and um, they have, they've put in place stricter uh, punishments for players to get caught, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but even now, guys that are, so guys like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Mark McGuire, they're eligible to get in the Hall of Fame now. Oh, but really? you have a lot of old school baseball guys that won't vote for them because they, they disqualify them as cheaters. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's just a, it's, that has had ramifications past. Well, this is the question yeah. then for the Christians. This is a culture about, this is a show about culture and Christianity. Yeah. As we're thinking about getting your kids involved in baseball, you're thinking about watching baseball. Is there something that Christians need to consider when it comes to in this sport to, in order to be successful, you will have to give in morally in some ways if you ever want to play this for mm. a career. Uh, you will have to give up your weekends if you ever want to follow it as a family. Does it take so many nights away just to watch it or for your kids to participate in it? The way you teed up that question, I would go, okay, so what about any sport? Yes, I think that's exactly my point. Like, we're not going to narrow it to baseball here. Like, just talk about... No. Is it any family obsession? And is baseball an opportunity, like anything, to twist into something that's ungodly? Or is it as amoral as anything else we might choose and say, there's a way to do baseball Christianly? Or is it a particularly uh, immoral sport? You're not an athlete, are you? (laughs) (laughs) You are coming in hot. Again, Mason, <laughs> should we excuse ourselves? Yeah. Like I, I like, worked, I worked with a cyclist for a while, and we talked about like he was top of his game, collegiate cyclist. But he said when he when he began to really try and go pro, he's like, there's a certain point where you just can't go past it mm. unless you're blood unless doping or you're something. doping. You cannot go past a certain yeah. point. Yeah. And he said what he what was difficult was that he watched his friends and co competitors just begin to excel. Mm-hmm. He's like, we didn't talk about it, but I knew what was happening because I'm, there's no I'm way better to do than it. those guys. Yeah. And there's no way. And he said, I just had to quit. Like, I, I couldn't compete. And so I think there is a level of competition where, it, like with anything, can be unhealthy. And uh, you're going to have to really exercise some judgment. But if we're thinking about just, hey, how do I raise a kid? in, Or how do I let my family walk around in a sport? Uh, let all the good discipline of team help them? Yeah. You're just, like, it's an earlier conversation. You're going to be shepherding their heart as you go along and maintaining culture of your family. Excellent. I think one of the big family challenges to the sport of baseball is not only because there's so many games in the pro game, but because there are so many games for a kid level, and you could play year-round, you could do clubs, you can do yeah. whatever. Yeah. And families really will give yeah. uh, give themselves over to a kid that may never make it in the pros, but in the name of a scholarship, they'll spend right. thousands and thousands of dollars on this sport. And so one of the big trends right now in Christianity and in our country is uh, eliminating things that take up a lot of time eliminating junk in our lives. And so I want to talk in our last topic here, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about minimalism. But first, uh, let's take a break for our sponsor. Okay, now for our last topic, let's talk about minimalism. Adam, mm. you're a minimal. Don't you live in a tiny house with only two shirts or something? Isn't that your I life? Do. I okay. do. Um, <laughs> I do all capsule clothing. Is that what they call What's it? The, what, yeah, I don't know about that. What is the new Netflix special that everybody loves right now? Ti- Magic up? Art of Tidying Up. Oh, Magic Marie Art Kondo. of Tidying Up. Yeah, Marie Kondo. Nate, none of us have seen this Tidying Up show on Netflix, but I know you have. Yeah. And a lot of people have seen it right now. Tell me, what is it? Why is it Why is it trending? What's the What's the idea behind it? I don't know why it's trending. Uh, it, was a, it was an interesting thing to watch, but essentially uh, there's a woman named Marie Kondo who has this method of... 
uh, decluttering your your house and as a means to kind of declutter your life, your brain, find joy. So the method is, I don't remember the exact order, but there's like a five-step process. You do clothes, you do kitchen, you do garage, all these kind of things. And you're eliminating Yes. Things? So okay. her her philosophy is pick up every single item you have in your home. If it sparks joy, keep it. If it doesn't, toss it. Oh, say goodbye to some of my kids. <laughs> Wow, it's been a lot, a lot of the memes that we've seen. <laughs> <start>. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So it just it. Each episode is a is her working with a particular family to kind of declutter their homes. Oh, and, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She has a philosophy that you should own more than thirty books. Oh, really? How'd that roll I for you, like buddy? <laughs> I don't have more than thirty in my home. Yeah, because they're all in your office. They're all my office <laughs> library, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like Beast Castle in his office. Really? Yeah. So what? the library he gives to Bell. Is that too deep of a reference? I don't know. I feel know like what that fell was. dead on your guys' ears. <laughs> no, no, it just shows I, more of your knowledge base. Yeah. Okay. Hey, you're, a, you're a thinking man. Oh. Uh, what is. Uh, why, does, why would she say only 30 books? Is it because it's only what's useful? Show. Like oh, I said, okay. we don't have Netflix. So I but seen the you show. knew enough to know you'd be offended by the book comment. I so saw you're never going to watch lose it. its mind. <laughs> About 30 books. I was like, hey, show the lady some charity. Like, she has a philosophy that's part of her philosophy. Yeah. Okay. So, But there's also, there's it's a connection. It's not like you have to buy every piece either of her philosophy, no. right? I mean, maybe you like books, but the rest of your house is clean. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to. <laughs> that's I, fine. I, mean, I could use some decluttering. Yeah. I could use some straightening up. That's for sure. She's walking through like, hey, if you've got all the shirts that you hope you can fit into in a year after you lose weight and they're not bringing you joy, they're just bringing you tax in your mind, maybe you get rid of those shirts. And then once you do have a new felt figure, go buy some nice shirts. Mm. Like she's trying to work through stuff like that. Gotcha. We talked recently about Lint and about giving things up, yeah. and that kind of connects to this conversation too, but you've talked about giving digitally things up. Are there ways that you've decluttered your life digitally? I know your phone, you've told me before, it's kind of like a brick. You don't use it for what every, uh, every other person that you might have a smartphone does it. And can you tell me a little bit about digitally minimalizing and why a Christian might consider that a uh, spiritual practice? I, You know, um, yes, I think so. Uh, I think... I'm not just trying to be anachronistic. I'm not just trying to be like a grumpy old man or something like that. I I, I talked about it before, but my wife takes lots of pictures. She's a photographer. And I sort of started to notice myself in the background of her pictures. And I was always on my phone. And I realized I was missing out on my children's life. So that was really like the kind of the first impetus. But then I started to think like, man, like I could read Instead of looking at one of your own. thirty books, I, I could yeah, yeah, one no. of my thirty books. <laughs> you could reread a book. I could reread a book. I could pray. I could play with my kid. I could do a million. I could work out. I could do any other thing that would be um, productive. Would be the non-spiritual way of saying it. Yeah. But but uh, I think the spiritual way of saying it, maybe maybe even the Marie Kondo way of saying it, that would bring more joy. That yeah. could focus on God more. That would. Um, that would uh, uh, sanctify. And so, um, and, and, and then also just to know the things I was probably looking at on my phone were empty. I, yeah. You know what I mean? It was either like Didn't add anything playing a simple game. It was all avoidant. It was all like avoidance space and Escapism. stuff like that. I so, just, yeah. I just finished reading Cal Newport's new book, Digital yeah, Minimalism. How is that? It's yeah. fantastic. Great. What's it called? Digital Minimalism. Oh, really? He wrote okay. Deep Work also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an MIT researcher. Uh, the book is really helpful. His main premise is... Uh, that we're all kind of within uh, an intention economy. 
And so when you are using or welcoming any device into your life, the economy it exists in is getting your attention. Yeah. And the way the most precious resource you have is your attention. Mm. You can give that to your family. You can give it to your work. You can give it to care of yourself. To your God. uh, To your God. Yeah. And uh, I was reading an article by a guy named Alan Jacobs. Do you know Alan Jacobs? Yeah. So Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Okay. Uh, Alan Jacobs, professor at Baylor, wrote a book called How to Think. And I was reading an article this week written by him, and he began to talk about the difference in our society right now about – Back in the days, like when during the Great Awakening, preachers would begin to be, and this is all circle back around. Preachers were talking about, uh, hey, you need to know your God is holy. Mm-hmm. In light of his holiness, you need to know that you are not holy. And you need to sit in that and feel it because then you understand your need. Mm. And really, so uh, an understanding of uh, sinfulness helps you walk into godliness. Mm-hmm. Calvin's whole thing of knowledge of God, knowledge of self. But Jacobs makes the really astute point. Uh, if you can just go for a distraction, the moment you feel uncomfortable, then there's no entrance into uh, the pathway of godliness. Mm. Because if there's any thought of, oh, no, I'm not enough, I'm not okay, let me get rid of this feeling and go through a distraction, yep. which Sherry Turkle, who's another uh, sociologist, would talk about, that you then enter into like a, a trap for your attention. Mm. And so you're walking into any number of apps that you go through in a circuit and spend your time in, and you're going to look up, but it's 20 minutes later, and you've just scrolled through Facebook or Instagram. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, circling back to Cal, his whole thing is, if you're taking out hollow or empty leisure, mm-hmm. which is really just, you're in the elevator, you're between meetings, you're walking down the hall, yeah. um, you're at a stoplight. Like a good measure, if you if you pull out your phone at a stoplight, you need to think about your habits. Yeah, yeah. And he says, what you need to do is you need to replace those things with quality leisure. Or quality attention. For example? For example, he uses some things that I think as a Christian I would say. For example, practicing spiritual disciplines. Yep. Spending time in conversation with people. Spending time <clears throat> with friends. Uh, <clears throat> he uses things like uh, learning how to fix things with your hands. Like having quality leisure. He said, but That's what good. you need to do is if you're trying to replace a poor uh, appetite with a better appetite, you need to begin practicing the better appetite before you cut off the really immediate gratification of technology. Mm. Otherwise, it'll, you'll feel hollow, but you'll go back to... Something. You'll go back to something. Yeah. And I think what's really important here is thinking through the way you structure your day and your life. I know I'm referencing a bunch of books. I've been thinking about this a bunch for art, for uh, yeah. discussions we're having in the residency. Yeah. Uh, there's a book that's called out, come out just now by a guy named Justin Early called The Common Rule. Yeah. And it's so good. It's I'm, really I'm good. reading through it now. Yeah. yeah so too. Justin's whole thing is you need to think through a way to have a shared path of life like a common rule to use this title. And there's different habits that are individual, mm. that are daily and weekly. And if you're sharing them with other people, what's really happening is you're leveraging your attention and your habits for love of God and love of neighbor. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's good. And you're stepping out of being connected to your phone. You're stepping into being connected to other people and thinking through how to steward your attention in those spaces. That's so I think excellent. that's digital minimalism is helpful in that area. Also minimalism in general. In general, It yeah. steps out of just making my house nicer. Yeah. yeah, and minimalism in itself can also become an obsession for somebody that we would say that can be the distraction if all you do is, is looking at things and saying, if I have less, then I'll have more. But it is a really helpful way to fight off some of the other things that we feel like are more pervasive in our culture, like gluttony, like consumerism, like materialism, like distraction, like yeah. you're talking about. And so it's not inherently evil to be a minimalist, yeah. but I don't think either. Can we say that it's a Christian practice to join the movement of minimalism? I don't know. I mean, 
this is what's hard is like what I don't want to do. Here's the thing. You got to recognize what the problems are in society, Good. right? Yeah. And we need to be honest about those. And it doesn't mean we just give that up for a different vice of some sort. Uh, and to your point, like if you think minimalism is going to make you happy, right. that's not what, yeah. well, that's not the argument. Yeah. But to say we do, I mean, our culture is a culture of shallow distraction, buy things will make you feel better. That's what we are being sold every day. Right. So I love, love, love the idea that there is a movement of minimalism out there. Yeah. I don't want to sit here and be like every little thing that comes along like, well, no, 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 it's not, you know. Um, no, this is great. Yeah. It is a great thing that there is minimalism. It is a great thing that people will, you know, I remember – it doesn't matter, but I, I think it's a good thing that people may become less distracted in our culture. Maybe yeah. it wakes them up to good. the the world we're living in. Uh, you know, I think it's another example, though, of a cultural phenomenon that it can only become a cultural phenomenon in a culture that has too much, that has luxuries. That if we were all like I, the house that I grew up in, I was afforded five t-shirts a year, one pair of pants, one pair of shoes, and that had to last me a school year. And at that point, if you would have tried to tell me about minimalism, I think I would have looked around and been like, what are you talking yeah. about? Of course, I was a kid at the time too. Yeah. But in our culture of luxury, of saying I can build a library of books, and I'll tell you when refugees come to my home and they see books, and I don't feel like I have a ton of my books on display, but they see them, they take pictures with the books on mm -hmm. my wall because mm -hmm. to them, it's like, wow, you have a library in your home. Yeah. When they see art on you the do. wall, I think you have a museum you do. in your home and they're coming from a world where they've been not only not had much but everything they had was taken away yeah. Yeah. and so in our culture of luxury we're able to look around and say well we should reduce things for the sake of distraction but also maybe consider the fact that everything you've been given in the Lord is not to terminate on you yeah, That's right. and so if we yeah. spend everything we have in order to accumulate around us there are parables Christ told distinctly against that going hey I have so much what should I do oh we should build a bigger yeah. barn yeah. Yeah. you know he's going How, yeah, this very night your life will be taken from you and then who will have what is left I actually I, think of Practices of Love did you guys read that book we've talked about it before no. um, the whole point of the book was he looks at the spiritual disciplines and, he, and, and his point is sort of the same point that um, the common rule is making. So he says, we don't just fast so that we feel better about ourselves. Yeah. We don't just um, practice sort of uh, poverty is the wrong word, but minimalism as a discipline uh, in a sense. Um, we don't practice that so that we can feel better about ourselves. He's like, we, yep, that's it. It's Kyle David Bennett. Yeah, Kyle David Bennett. Um he says we do things like we fast so that we can feast with others. Good. You know, we we uh, we we don't go out and practice consumerism uh, and spend all that we have so that we can spend on others, so that we can spend time around a table, so that we can do the. And so, I guess what I'm saying is, there's just the spiritual aspect is exactly what we've been talking about, which is. Um, we're not just abstaining to abstain. We're not just being minimalist to be minimalist. Good. We are being minimalist so that we can use our gifts, our talents, and our resources uh, to love God and love others. Yeah, and I think if you connect it historically, we're talking about practicing a discipline of simplicity. That's right. And so you're looking that at— That is actually the di discipline, yeah. And so it's how can I live in, with a simple attention of heart yes. and practice of life? In a world that would say, you don't need simplicity, you need everything. Mm. And really, it's training us to be gluttons with our attention, which goes nowhere— it's saying, hey, how, how can you, walking in the way of Jesus, practice simplicity of mind and of heart, directing your attention in a certain way and letting your life follow that? So I think that's a helpful way to look at, kind of look at uh, minimalism. Yeah.
If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Rourke and edited and mixed by the very handsome Chris Starrett. We'll see you next time. God bless and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.